Blog Talk Radio. Hi, I'm Damian Gillis with the Common Sense Canadian, and I took a left at the valley with Kevin and Karen. I woke up this morning and a very sleepy sight. Like when you're feeling it's all a big lie. the tones of the Bob Dylanist group, Natural Selection. This is Left to the Valley with Kevin and Karen. Hi, Karen. Hello, Kevin. And uh, we got a show today on women in science. Now, I have to start by apologizing to everybody because I told everybody that I wouldn't be here. And unfortunately, we had a, a group of women that were supposed to come here and... Uh, Through various things. Not of their fault, you know. Machinations got, of the universe. Exactly. One got sick and all that. Uh, you stuck with me here today. But we also do have... Our friend and colleague, Nancy, here with us. Hi, Nancy. So glad you're here, Nancy. Glad to be here as an auxiliary. (laughs) (laughs) You are way underestimating (laughs) your value on this show to call yourself an auxiliary. We're very happy you're here today. Yeah. Uh, Like we said, we're doing today a show on the um, women in science. Uh, If you guys have not followed our show today, um, Left of the Valley is a show about a positive atheism Secular uh, thinking and uh, no, skeptical thinking and secular humanism. Yeah, you yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I was thinking, wow, good recovery. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. So we got lots of things going on today. Um, well, of course, we have our day in history with uh, with Nancy that's going to come up in a minute. Uh, we're doing the uh, another brilliant moment. We also have the top ten other women of science you need to know. We have a spotlight of of uh, Mercury, and we also have an interview with Rachel Brown. Rachel Brown happens to be a paleo anthropologist, and she was also uh, on the science segment of uh, Dogma Debate with David Smalley, which we'll actually have as an interview also for the next show. Sounds good? Yeah. So I guess we might as well jump in there and uh, see what goes on right away with this day in history. Ooh, that's a bit loud. This day in history, a roundup of those events and individuals that altered and illuminated the days between February 2nd to February 15th. February the 2nd was Groundhog Day in the United States and Canada, and as many of you know, there are a lot of groundhogs in the U.S. and Canada, but this year one really stands out, and that's the Groundhog Jimmy from Sun Prairie, Wisconsin. And he stands out <laughs> because he actually bit the ear of the mayor. <laughs> he did as the mayor leaned in to hear the prediction. Yipes, Jimmy got him. <laughs> so, uh, so my prediction, uh, the grumpy groundhog from Sun Prairie will not be part of any Groundhog Day celebrations Ever. That's awesome. <laughs> I don't know why they don't have any women groundhogs or girl groundhogs. You know, they ought to have an Ursula groundhog. But no, they're they, all boys. They probably <laughs> don't even know what the sex is. They just <laughs> pick a name. That's <laughs> true. Uh, February the 3rd is uh, Heroes Day in Mozambique. Uh, a sad day. It marked the day that the music died because we lost the big bopper, Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, along with their pilot, Roger Peterson, and a fatal 
plane crash in Clear Lake, Iowa in 1959. And that was the event that inspired Don McLean to compose that epic song, Bye Bye, Miss American Mm -hmm. Pie. Yeah. So anyway, it was a sad event, but good song. So skipping to February the 6th, it's International Day of Zero Tolerance to Female Genital Mutilation Day, which is sponsored by the United Nations. Keep that day in mind as we get to the end. It becomes a little bit significant. Um, on February the 6th, which was that day, um, in Dallas in 2012, African Americans for Humanism started a uh, program of secular humanism and the Center for in- uh, Inquiry was part of that uh, part of that group that launched. So it's a new and growing segment in the humanist community and especially in Dallas, the African Americans for Humanism, we wish them well. February the 7th is Independence Day in Grenada. And on this day, in Switzerland, women won the right to vote. Here's a pop quiz. Guess what year in Switzerland women won the right to vote? It's got to be before Canada, so I'd say 1912. 1971. Oh! What? Isn't it new? That's exactly my reaction. Isn't it surprising of what we think of a progressive European country? Wow. Yeah. 1971? 1971 in Switzerland. Unbelievable. Almost in our lifetime. Yeah. And this, so this got me wondering about the timeline of women's right to vote. So the first country to grant women the right to vote was New Zealand in 1893. Yay, New Zealand. Yeah. So now, any guesses as to the last country as of 2011 to grant women's right to vote? Well, there's still uh, 2011 <laughs> countries where you're not allowed yeah. to vote, right? In That's the Middle right. East. So in 2011, Saudi Arabia. Yeah, I was going to say. Yeah, but women don't begin to vote until this year. Oh. Yeah, interesting. So anyway, but, uh, go ahead. I yeah, I remember reading about that, and they aren't allowed to stand for office, but they are allowed to vote. So, or they are allowed to stand for office in some kind of weird, limited way. But yeah. uh, anyway, so it's sort of a half step forward. But it's, it's a half step, but it's a big half step, yes, especially yeah. where it is. So there are still some countries holding out: Brunei, Lebanon, the United Arab Emirates, and unless Pope Francis has made a special announcement as we speak, believe it or not, the Vatican. <laughs> I believe it. I still believe it. <laughs> so let's skip to February the 12th, which was Darwin Day. And we all want to say happy birthday. And um, Mr. Darwin, you would be proud to know that many of us are still dedicated to ensure that evolution is still alive and well in science classes all over North America. Um, a brief mention of February the 13th, which was World Radio Day. So we're celebrating a little bit late and hopefully participating in uh, in the grand world design of radio programs. Radio, the invention radio. that was supposed to die when television appeared. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, February the 14th, um, Valentine's Day, of course. So I tried to find another day that also commemorated was commemorated on the 14th, and I found a great one, and it's also a V day, but a very different V as we get into this. V-Day was started in 1998 by Eve Ensler, and she's the playwright of the Vagina Monologues, which uh, performed off-Broadway for five years and is still being performed by various groups today. 
the play, very, very bold and forward, even for its time in 1998, addressed women's sexuality and social stigma surrounding rape and abuse and created a new conversation about and with women. Uh, the mission for V-Day is very simple. It demands that violence against women and girls must end. And to do this, once a year in February, Eve allows groups around the world to produce a performance of the play, as well as other works created by V-Day, and then use the proceeds uh, for the local individual products and program, uh, projects and programs that work to end violence against women and girls, often in, in shelters and rape crisis centers. So what began as one event in New York City in 1998 includes over, this is remarkable to me, 5,800 V-Day events annually. And the V stands for Victory Valentine's. And one word that's still problematic, even though we're here in 2015, and of course that word is vagina. I don't know why people have a problem with that word. Maybe because it sounds like some kind of disease or something. It does not. (laughs) (laughs) And that's the problem. You know, women have bits and men have bits, and some are internal and some are external, but they're all bits that keep us going and have various functions. And yet, to some who are more prudish than others, uh, we put connotations. And Mm. in many instances, it stops women, when they're girls, from thinking about themselves positively. And it shouldn't, but uh, we can perhaps get into that uh, in another yeah. another day. They always say boys have to be proud of their penis, and women, for some reason, have to be ashamed and wash yeah. it often. I, I was <laughs> just going to say that. That's it's what they're a, it's, yeah, boys are taught to be proud, and girls are taught shame, which is ridiculous. It is, it is, and and yet it's still there. So maybe one of these days we can explore. Uh, how people react to various anatomical words and how society has evolved or not evolved in, in dealing with these words in a in a more mature fashion. Sounds like a study to me. Yeah, sounds yeah. like a great show. Yeah, <laughs> it does. Anybody who's interested can find out more about V-Day at www.v-day organization. Well, here's the interesting part. And, and it goes back to the gentle mutilation day in that I did not find out about V-Day by looking at Wikipedia and History Orb and the places that one would normally look at a day that commemorates um, various uh, occasions and holidays. I saw it on TV, and it was an interview with Eve Ensler. And I went when I went back to Wikipedia and all of those um, history um, um sites, it wasn't to be found. And I wonder whether it was an oversight or it goes back to the conversation we're having about not being able to handle the V word, you know, as uh, as maturely as as we'd like. Good question. It is a good question. Anyway, let's end with today. And if you've been looking at the paper and looking at Google and looking at every other place, what flag is prominently displayed? It's our own. Hooray! Our <laughs> Canadian flag. Because uh, as of um, today, in 1965, a new red and white maple leaf flag, which was designed by George Stanley, was adopted as the flag of Canada. And that replaced the old Canadian red ensign banner. So happy birthday to our proud maple leaf flag. So young. So yeah. young flag. Yeah. And that, Yay. dear listeners, brings to a close another passing parade of interesting, mundane, and usual, and occasionally bizarre events and people that make up 
this day in history. Well, thank you so much, yeah. Nancy. And we're going to be right back right after this. Did you ever wonder if there's more to life than what is in the holy books? Do you think you can be good without God? Would you rather think skeptically than rely on blind faith? You are not alone. You are not alone. You are not alone. Dude, you're not alone. You're not alone. You are not alone. You are not alone. Join us at the Fraser Valley Atheists, Skeptics and Humanists. Be amongst friends. Find us at fvash.com. Well, we're back. Sorry, did I spook you? Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> we're back. And like we said, this show today is about women in science. Now, I'm going to try to make it, you know, to speak as little as possible because I want you two ladies, you're from a different generation, to give as much of your opinion as possible. And that might be difficult for me. but <laughs> <laughs> You can do it. I, I can do it. So until then, but before we get into the women in science bit, we do have our usual another brilliant moment brought to you by religion. Oh yes, the wacky world of religion. Actually, today I've got a story that was sent by Bethany. Uh, it's an older story, but it, w- it was totally about women, so I thought it would be appropriate to talk about it. This is a story that happened in 2002, actually. It's about uh, a a school fire that happened in Mecca. Now, the text says, On March 11, 2002, a fire in the girls' school in Mecca, Saudi Arabia, killed 15 people, all young girls. The event was especially notable due to the complaints that Saudi Arabia's religious police stopped the schoolgirls from leaving the burning building and hindered rescue workers because the girls were not wearing correctly Islamic dresses. I've heard this, yeah. Yes. Now, according to a Saudi press report, the blaze, or blaze at the Intermediate School 31 started about 8 a.m. The blaze began in a room on the top floor, apparently caused by an unintended cigarette. An unintended cigarette? You mean an unattended cigarette? Unattended. Yeah. Unattended. Yeah, yeah. That's, what, that's what I said. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> So anyway, um, so uh, as a result of the fire ensuing uh, and the rush to escape, 15 young girls died and more than 50 were injured. The majority of the death occurred when a staircase collapsed as the girls fled the building. The residential property upon which the school was built was uh, was uh, being overcrowded with 800 pupils was unsuitable. In addition, the building may have lacked proper safety infrastructure and equipment such as fire stairs and alarms. Um, yeah, the majority of, uh, sorry, according to the at least two reports, members of the Committee for the Propagation of Virtue and the Prevention of Vice, CPVPV, also known as the Mudaween, would not allow the girls to escape or to be saved from the fire because they were not properly covered. And the Mudaween did not want physical contact to take place between the girl and the civil defense forces of fear of sexual enticement. And various, uh, <laughs> variously that the girls were locked in by the police or forced back into the building. 
Civil Defense stated that the fire extinguished itself before they arrived on the scene. CPVPV officers did appear to object to Civil Defense workers going into the building. Did or did not? Did. Did appear to object to the Civil Defense workers going into the building. So Human Rights Watch quoted the civil defense officer saying, whenever the girls got out through the main gate, these people forced them to return via another. Instead of extending or helping a hand to rescue, uh, to the rescue work, they were using their hands to beat us. Unbelievable. That was exactly what I was doing. You said exactly what I was doing. I mean, what kind of training do, do they get? Yeah. When it's a matter of life or death, look at what they're wearing, and if it's acceptable, you can go in and help them. If it's not acceptable, oh, well, they know better. Yeah, I, you know, I always there's, there's always a meme that goes by that, you know, they say, if you're in a car accident, you're not going to pray to God. You're going to call 911. Uh, and it sounds like a nice atheist meme, but these people... Do don't do that. There is an emergency, and they pray to God first. <laughs> if that doesn't tell you how religion is dangerous, I don't know what does. I mean, what kind of? I do believe that humans have a empathy for each other, and you know, most people would. So maybe you might not be brave enough to run into the burning building to save them, but to stop them from getting out. I mean, I actually think you'd have to have a fair amount of training to turn off your human empathy to allow you to do that. And, uh, yeah, what kind of religion has that kind of morality that it's better to let someone die than to let someone else see her shoulders or her ankles? Like, really? Exactly. So well stated, Karen. I mean, that's that's exactly the point. Yeah. It's, it, it's appalling. It is appalling. It's, right? it's appalling, even though it's 2002. It's it's very, very recent. Yeah, that is. That's 2002? 2002. Mm-hmm. So it's already 12 years ago, but still, yeah, it's still, amazing. It's still far too recent. I mean, you expect to hear about that happening 300 years ago, not no, in this century. Even 300 years ago, you would think at some point, <laughs> nobody could be that strict about your religious customs. That you, you would hope not. No, yeah, no, even if there was a God, which of course there isn't, but even if there was a God, you really think some God would say, hey... You can't go out like that. You know, <laughs> you know, you're barely wearing anything. Who cares about your life? You really got to be modest when you go out. Otherwise, you know, you're better off to die. I wonder if there was enough uproar and criticism after it happened to change any of the practices whereby they're, they've reformed, you know, to take in human life into consideration rather than dress. It's a good, That's it, a good question. It yeah. is a good question because uh, I, I was about to say, you know, if this happened again 12 years later today, um, pardon the pun, heaven forbid, uh, would this... Would it still happen? Yeah. yeah, that's a good question. I get the feeling that it would still happen. I think in in some parts of the world, I'm afraid it would. Yeah. This is a a question we should have asked our friend uh, Ahmed and uh, Jim. Remember Jim when he Mm -hmm. came on the... That would would have been an interesting question to ask these gentlemen. But anyway, that was my other brilliant moment. Thank you, Bethany Cunningham, for the story. Yes, thank you so much. Now, you, Karen, have an interesting bit. (laughs) Sorry, my (laughs) mind just went back to vagina. (laughs) Sorry. Okay, uh, this is where sorry. I'm going to turn my old microphone off at this point. Uh, all right, see you guys later. All right. Okay, I have a a list of the top ten uh, other women of science. That's, that's not a top ten underrepresented women in science list. So, I mean, pretty much everyone has heard of Marie Curie, of course, the only two-time winner of the uh, Nobel Prize in two different categories. 
However, there are a lot of other women who contributed in science and are very often um, left out, sometimes deliberately, sometimes maybe not deliberately, but just due to the, the time that they were nominated. By the way, I've got a drum roll for this. <clears throat> oh, okay, I'll yeah, let you do your drum roll. Well, you know, you got to say, like, number 10. Oh, okay. <laughs> Thank you for teaching me how to use the drum roll. <laughs> anyway, so these, these women should not only be acclaimed for their contributions, but we should also acknowledge the difficulty with which their um, achievements were... Sorry, they... Ah, acknowledge the difficulty they had in, in achieving these things because they were women in a man's world and up until very recently science was solely the, the domain of men. So they were often discouraged, ignored, or humiliated, yet they prevailed and left a footprint in history that benefits us all and that we should all know about. So here they are. You can use the, you can use the arrow key to scroll down. And stuff yeah, I know. I know. I got it. Um, what were you saying about muting your mic? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm teasing. I'm <laughs> so, okay, here's our top ten list. Drum roll, please. Number ten. This is Emily de Châtelet. Um, I had actually discussed her in a previous show, but just in case you didn't hear that, uh, she was born in 1706, died in 1749 due to complications in childbirth. She was a daughter of the French court's chief of protocol. She married the Marquis de Châtelet in 1725. At the age of 27, she began studying math and then physics. Um, she had an affair with, with Voltaire, who helped her create a lab in her country house. And um, just as a little side note, her husband knew about this and was totally cool with it. I'm sure he was having fun with someone else, too. So it was the age of enlightenment. Um, and she translated Define Isaac... enlightenment. <laughs> uh, <laughs> My face is red now. Translated Isaac Newton's Princi- Principia in French. I, I don't. She translated it into French. Yeah. Yes, and it, that that translation is still in use today. It's still considered the finest translation of Isaac Newton's work. So then we move on to no, number nine. Drum roll, please. Caroline Herschel, seventeen, born in seventeen fifteen, died in eighteen forty eight. Um, so she was born in Hanover, Germany. She was uh, pretty much the household servant. She described herself actually as the Cinderella of the family. Um, she, Her older brother, William, moved to England in 1772 and brought her along with him. And he went into astronomy, and she assisted him with observations and with making telescopes. So if you thought you recognized that name, Herschel, you do. They make telescopes and binoculars and things. The company still does. She was the first woman to discover a comet. She discovered eight in total. And she was the first woman to be published by the Royal Society in England. And she was also the first woman to get paid as a scientist. After her brother William became the king's personal astronomer, after his discovery of Uranus in 1781, um, he, her brother, con- con- convinced the king that she deserved a salary and that she deserved to be, you know, uh, acknowledged as a scientist as well. And did, so, did you know that when they discovered uh, Uranus, uh, they actually named it George mm, after named, the king. After the king. Hmm, so for a very, cool. very brief moment, it was called George, which kind of makes me believe that George was a bit of an asshole too. <laughs> <laughs> That's not really true. Or <laughs> I so bought that. Okay. <laughs> um, uh oh. Anyway, after after William William's death, her brother's death in 1822, she returned to Hanover, 
And um, the, between the two of them, their work increased the known star clusters of our universe from 100 to 2,500. So they discovered a lot of star clusters. She um, died, Caroline died at the age of 97 after receiving several honors, including a gold medal from the Royal Astronomical Society. So she was actually acknowledged for her work. But it's worth noting that she was only acknowledged for her work because her brother was insistent on it. So you have to give him top marks for being a feminist. And then we move on to number eight. Drum roll, please. Mary Anning, born in 1799, died in 1847. So in 1811, Mary's brother spot what he, spotted what he thought was a crocodile skeleton, and he had his 11-year-old sister Mary, nothing like child labor, dig it out. So she dug out a skull and 60 vertebrae of an ichthyosaurus and sold it to a private collector for 23 pounds. Pretty cool. <laughs> and after that, she became a lifelong fossil hunter, finding plesiosaurs, pterodactyls, and hundreds of other fossils. And she helped draw a picture of the Jurassic marine world through her discoveries. And um, she taught herself anatomy, geology, paleontology, and eventually was consulted by scientists the world over to help hunt fossils. Um, yeah, and that's kind of cool because Rachel Brown is also a paleontologist. Um, drum roll, please. Sorry. Number seven. Mary Somerville, born in 1780, died in 1872. These women are all roughly contemporaries, which is pretty cool. So Mary Somerville's father told her not to, but regardless, the 14-year-old Mary started studying algebra and math. It's amazing that he actually forbid her to do that. Um, and then we jump far forward, and she, her husband died in 1804. And after that, she resumed her studies and became involved in intellectual circles with people like scientist John Playfair. So um, we can assume her first husband was much like her father and didn't think that that was an appropriate thing for a woman to do, actually, know anything. So the, she remarried in 1812 and began experimenting in magnetism, and she produced a series of writings on astronomy, chemistry, physics, and mathematics. She uh, translated astronomer Pierre-Simon Laplace's The Mechanism of the Heavens into English. Along with Caroline Herschel, she was named an honorary member of the Royal Astronomical Society. Drumroll, please. Number six. Maria Mitchell, uh, born 1818, died in 1889. Maria Mitchell learned to observe the stars from her father for checking the accuracy of chronometers for whalers. It's interesting. By the age of 17, she'd already begun her own school for, school for girls teaching math and science. She spotted a comet in 1847, earning her a medal from the King of Denmark, and she became the first woman to be elected to the American Academy of Arts and Science. Uh, she met Mary Somerville, who I mentioned earlier, and uh, was very, very much admired her. Um, and she became the first female astronomy professor in the United States, in, I don't know how to say it, Vassar College in 1865. So... Yeah, she was she was also distinguished. But again, she had to fight against the people who men who felt that she shouldn't uh shouldn't have any kind of knowledge of math and science. And drum roll please. Uh oh. Sorry, I, I, I totally lost my place. <laughs> 
<laughs> okay, number number five, Lise Metnier. I don't know if I'm saying that right. 1878 to 1968. We're getting a little more recent. So Lise was born in Austria. She was uh, barred from higher education at the age of 14, like all girls in Austria. Uh, at age 21, when women were finally allowed into Austrian universities, Something good happened in 18... (laughs) There we go. She excelled in math and physics and earned her doctorate in 1906. Um, She tried to work with uh, Marie Curie. It doesn't say why she couldn't, but she didn't. Anyway, she moved to Berlin, where she collaborated with Otto Hahn on studying radioactive elements. She couldn't work with Marie Curie because it was only a limited amount of space in the lab. Hmm. (laughs) No, actually, that's quite true. Um. So she was an Austrian Jewish woman, so she was excluded from the main labs and lectures, but she was allowed to work in the basement. She was forced to flee Germany in 1938, um, but she continued her work and discovered that uranium atoms were split when bombarded with neutrons. Austrian uh, 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 Austrian Jewish woman. Jewish woman. Jewish woman scientist. I mean, how many strikes? That's that's three three strikes strikes right there. (laughs) And yet she never was out. The driving force, I mean, as Karen is going through this, just the driving force of these women, yes. they they could not be stopped. They yes. just could not. It was so powerful within them to succeed that, yes, they did have some men that were backing them and protecting them, but even if they did. didn't, I think they still would have done anything to, to complete you know, that, that yeah. intellectual curiosity. And this yeah. is why we're acknowledging these women today. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's interesting because some of them had men helping them, and those ones are the ones that tended to get acknowledgement in their age. But there was still a lot of women doing things. If they didn't have male uh, counterparts who supported them, then they just were obscure. But they still did it, which is pretty cool. Ah, uh, men. Always a problem, no, isn't no. it? No, not at all. <laughs> um, so anyway, so she calculated the energy released and named it nuclear fission. So this discovery led to the nuclear age. Um, the, her partner, Han, won the Nobel Prize in 1944, but the committee overlooked her contributions. She refused to return to Germany and continued her research in Stockholm into her 80s. Now we go to, drumroll please. <clears throat> Number four is Irene Jolie, oh, Curie Joliot, the daughter of Pierre and Marie Curie. She was actually helping her mother on experiments when she was 17 or younger. She she helped a lot in the um, the lab, and she um shoot. This is professional radio. I know this is terrible. I'm sorry. I don't usually have this problem. Okay. Told you to use the arrow key. Told you to use the arrow key. (laughs) Anyway, she uh, her thesis for science for her science doctorate was on alpha rays of polonium, one of the elements her mother discovered, and she married Frederick Joliot, who was an assistant to her mother. And in 1934, they discovered artificial radioactivity by bombarding aluminum, boron, and magnesium with alpha particles to produce isotopes of nitrogen, phosphorus, and silicon. Which got them the Nobel Prize in Chemistry. And you all to remember that, and there'll be a quiz later. <laughs> she died, also died young of leukemia, like her mother, after because they didn't realize that all these radioactive elements were so hard on their bodies. So they did these experiments without any protection. 
Um, drum roll, please. <clears throat> Number three is Barbara McClintock, born in 1902. She only died in 1992. She studied botany. She got hooked on genetics and pioneered the study of genetics in maize or corn cells. Um, she determined that genes could move within and between chromosomes, but her findings were largely ignored because they didn't fit with conventional thinking. Um, improved molecular techniques in the 70s proved her theory, and these jumping genes were found in microorganisms, insects, and even humans. <clears throat> and she actually did get the Nobel Prize in 1983 for her discovery. Drumroll, please. Number two. Dorothy Hodgkin. Born in 1910, died in 1994. Um, she was born in Cairo to a pair of British archaeologists and sent to England to study chemistry. Uh, at 18, she studied at Oxford and then at Cambridge to study X-ray crystallography, which is a type of 3D imaging using X-rays. Um, <clears throat> and she she returned to Oxford in 1934 to teach chemistry, which is pretty amazing. And uh, um, and I've lost my place. <laughs> and then you complain to Karen at Left of the Valley. It's a long list. Okay, she was awarded the 1934 Nobel Prize for determining the structure of penicillin, vitamin B12, and insulin. That's pretty huge contribution to science. Um, then we get to number one. Rosalind Franklin, born 1920. She died in 1958, so she died very young. Um, James Watson and Francis Crick got the credit for determining the structure of DNA, but their work relied on the photo of Rosalind. She, just, she studied physics and chemistry in London in the 30s and then enrolled in Cambridge. She got her doctorate in physical chemistry. She was, while she was in Paris, she learned X-ray crystallography and made X-ray images of DNA, but her images were shown to Watson and Crick, who then determined the double helix structure and published, the, published it in the journal Nature. And um, she was never given credit. And I, I've read about this story too. That she, uh, they were working independently. They weren't they weren't con in contact with each other. And she had, you know, she had this photo that a, a male colleague of hers then sent to these other guys who were studying the same similar thing. And it was only because that they used her work to to kind of understand what they had been finding that they were able to make this this huge contribution to science, and they never, they, they, they knew, but they did not acknowledge her in any way. Or they were actually trying to suppress her work. So oh. She died in, uh, of ovarian cancer in 1958, and they won the Nobel Prize in 1962. So, that's it. That was a very long list, but yes. really amazing women. a good women. list. A good list of amazing, you're right, of amazing women who persevered yes. and accomplished something. And I, I hope they felt fulfilled. I hope they felt that they had accomplished something and a feeling of success rather than suppression, you know, because yeah. they couldn't do everything that they, they wanted to do. Yeah. Well, I learned a lot of things about that list. Uh, what, I, what really stands out is uh, we owe, in a way, the nuclear age to women. Yes. Uh, that's that's pretty impressive, you know, especially considering that's probably our most advanced technology today, this mm -hmm. with everything nuclear. So, mm -hmm. very interesting. One of the good things is that um, a lot of the colleges and universities in North America are now um, making it possible for more women to get into the science field because there aren't that many and they want to encourage them. So, there are a lot of. Um, 
subsidies and um, grants and um, what else do you call it when you're when you're going for your PhD and it's all paid for you know scholarships yes yeah, scholarships uh, there are a lot more of them available now than there ever have been because women have been very reluctant to go into the sciences so that's a very good thing mm-hmm. and you can understand why women would be reluctant if you go knowing that if you make a discovery probably your male counterpart is going to get the credit for it i mean if you are an ambitious person that's that's a real turn off you know you're not and i understand if you're passionate about it you probably do it anyway but that it is something that would discourage a lot of women from going in i think it still happens but i think the women are perhaps stronger and can discuss it more openly to to help prevent it it's also Mm -hmm. that today also a lot of men would not stand for this they will not stand for that's women true. being ignored like that today, like they did back then. True. That, that's true. And uh, I know that there are some women who are... We're not all bad. <laughs> I never said you were. Um, She's giving me that look, guys. This is radio. You can't what? see. She's got like, lightning in her eyes. It's not true. Um, there are a lot of the women women scientists who have succeeded who then work really hard to nurture other women in their field and, and really sort of teach them the ins and outs, which you shouldn't have to do, but that's sadly the reality. Teach them how they can get the credit, what, you know, how to to advance in their career. And so that's good too. Mm-hmm. So, there we go. Well, uh-oh, you know what this is. The pop quiz. That's right. I love pop quizzes. That's our theme for pop quizzes. Well, I was supposed to have this pop quiz for a whole bunch of women panel, but since there's two of you, you're going up against each oh, other. Oh, head to head. Oh, head no. To head. Nancy's no, no, going to no. cream me. No, no. I was going to say, Karen, I suddenly had this laryngitis. I'm so <laughs> glad you're here to carry. I'm terrible at pop quizzes. I think my pop quizzes are usually informative and pretty okay. They're, they're pretty awesome. I like yeah, when you're Yeah, when you're giving them, it's when you have to <laughs> provide the answers that are hard. <laughs> Well, it's, uh, o- it's only four questions. They won't be Only too bad. four questions. <laughs> okay, question How one. did the universe begin? <laughs> How'd you know? <laughs> Are you providing the answer for that one? <laughs> <laughs> no, question one. Of course, we're talking about women in science, right? So, what is the percentage of female researchers in the federal government and here in Canada? And this is from 2008. Is it A, 25%, B, 43%, C, 10%, or D, in the conservative government, we don't like women folk, we think. <laughs> uh, it's that one. And anyway, yeah. they've cut down every science program that existed in Canada. So they don't like anyone who thinks, but especially women. <laughs> my my heart goes with that one, and my head goes to the 25%, although 10%, somewhere between 10 and 25%. I, okay, you go with 25, I'll go with 10, because I was going to pick okay. one of those ones, too. Yeah. It is 25%, oh. as compared to 5% in 1983. Ooh, that's much better. So, so it is an increase, a yeah. substantial increase. Yeah, yeah. In, yeah that's in good. A bit 20 years. And hopefully actually, they're not the years. ones who are cleaning the lab after the guys leave. No. They're the ones who are actually <laughs> doing the research rather than, honey, would you get me a cup of coffee when oh, I, well, yeah. I, or, or type this up for me? <laughs> Whenever I do a bit of research for these these quizzes, I'm always surprised how the – this is 2008. I wouldn't have thought to find something a bit more recent. Yeah. Now, the, the next question is actually from 2003. Mm-hmm. Now, what is the percentage of male-to-female doctorate scientists research in the industry? In, in industry, not in government, in industry. Now, we're talking mm-hmm. like, for example, 
A, is it 60 male to 40% female? Is it B, 79% male to 21% female? Is it C, 73 to 27? Or D, 66 to 34? The lowest one. The the, lowest that one. was C, I think. 76 to something. Uh, the B is 79 to 21. That's the one. That's, That's the one. one. Now, there, all of them sound reasonable because they're all... There's a disparity there that's yes. <laughs> reasonable on all of them. So can you vote all of the above? All of the above? <laughs> depending know. on the industry? Depen- exactly, all of the above. Depending. Well, actually, it is 79% male and 21% female. Yeah, exactly. Question three. Karen, we're so skeptical. <laughs> we are, but I, sadly with good reason. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, this is cynical, I think, is the word. Cynical yeah, okay, good. Yeah, that's yeah, true. Cynical's good. Okay, three. What percentage of women are employed in natural sciences and related occupation? This is from 2009. Is it A, 10%, B, 21%, C, 3.5%, or D, 12%? 10, 21, 3.5, or 12? I'm going with B, 21%. Okay, I'll go with that. Nah, sorry, ladies, it is a 3.5%. <gasps> oh, uh, gross. Now, employed in natural sciences. Now, and it's not all sciences. It's natural sciences, I guess, is biology and, and some related occupations. Me. Oh, maybe that's because what I like. Does that go, science, if it's a natural science, does that go into, um, into medical research as well? You know what? I don't know. I don't know. I'm hoping so, but I'm not sure. I would have thought it was like environmental sciences and stuff like that. Yeah. yeah. I don't know, though. But I have no idea. as compared to the men, men, it's only 10.5% as well. So it's already it's still, this is the, po- mm. the population, the percentage of the population that works in that field. Oh, okay. All right. So that's not as bad as I thought. No, no. Yeah. It sounds okay. really horrible, but, you know, it was still 3.5 and for men, it's 10.5. Okay. So there's All still right. way more men yes, in that field but, than women. But it's not as bad as Three it. times and more, no. as more men. Question four. We already saw that Canada has 25% of female researchers. Now, which country has the most female researchers? Is it A, France, B, Israel, C, Greece, or D, Iceland? I'd say it's between Israel and Iceland, but I I don't know. I was going to say between France and Iceland. Um, Iceland is a very progressive yes. country. A lot of good stuff. Yeah, I'm, especially technology comes out of. Let's go with Iceland. But Jews are so smart. That's the problem. <laughs> 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 you know, <laughs> that's, that's my problem. <laughs> that wasn't a stereotype for anything. <laughs> uh, I'm going with Iceland. <laughs> okay, I'll go. I'll tell you. Go with Iceland. I'll go with uh, with Israel. Okay. And then, then okay. We'll see. Okay. Actually, it is Iceland. Oh, very uh, we, good. Like we said, Canada was 25%. France is 50.7%. Israel is 44.4%. Oh. Greece is 53.4%. I was surprised really? by that. Really? That surprises yeah. me, too. I was too. surprised by that because Greece is not known for being all that woman-friendly. No. Yeah. Iceland is 625 Wow. Yay, Iceland. Now, on this Yay. list, on this list of, of 30 countries, the only one I saw where had a lower score in Canada was Iraq with 21%. Wow, that so. uh, speaks poorly of our country. Yeah, yeah. Iceland really is pretty amazing in terms yes, of the, yeah. the, the the science science and technology that comes out of there for such a small country. It really, are people really are encouraged to, you know, to pursue any intellectual uh, pursuits that that are important to them. Yeah, yeah that's and, really to, cool. and to the community and the humanity as as a whole. And that was Great. that was our, our quiz. Well, now oh, apparently cool. you got a spotlight on Mary Curie. I do, I do. All right. So, 
Marie Curie. Most people know who Marie Curie is. They say, oh, yeah, she discovered radium. And that's She's true. that radioactive girl. Right? She is the radioactive girl. <laughs> <laughs> she discovered radium and polonium. Actually, she discovered polonium first. She won two Nobel Prizes in 1903. She won it for physics, discovering polonium with her husband. Um, and in 1911, she won it for chemistry, discovering radium. So she's the first woman to win the Nobel Prize at all. But the interesting thing about that was in 1903, when um, the Nobel Prize Committee was was uh, choosing who they would honor, they wanted to uh, give the prize to her husband, um, but not her. Even though she actually had started the research, he helped her, and they did work together closely as a team, but it was her initial idea, it was her initial research, and yet they didn't want to give it to her. And it was only because her husband insisted and said, no, she needs to be part of this, that they actually awarded her the prize. So I thought that was pretty cool. That's a, that's a nice Valentine's Day story. They were very equal partners in, in life and in science, and that was, that was really neat. I need one of those, aww, drops. <laughs> but i just like to point out, and something you said earlier, Nancy, reminded me of this, that um, people tend to forget they say, oh, well, you know, Marie Curie won two Nobel Prizes. What are women complaining about? Well, at the time that Marie Curie won her Nobel Prize, when women got married, they were their husband's property. They had no rights of their own. They had no property of their own. They had nothing that they could own individually. Everything they had was the property of their husband. Their husband could rape them. Their husband could beat them. They were treated like animals, essentially, as far as as far as the laws of the time were yeah, concerned. Yeah, the good old days. Uh, <laughs> oh, sorry. I'm just going to shut my mic here. Right, There's no divorce allowed for women. I mean, this is a time, a hugely sexist time in, in world history. So for a woman to be uh, to be in science at all was a huge accomplishment and very unusual. So um, I just want to remind those people who might think that this isn't really a big deal. It was a really big deal. Women couldn't vote. You know, we're still wearing skirts, and if you showed your ankles, you were in big trouble. So there you go. Anyway, <laughs> it was. She was. Uh, they were a, a remarkable, a remarkable team. They really were. Yes. Yeah. So uh, when she was born in um, in Warsaw, and she she and her sister, actually older sister. Older sister? Anyway, her sister. Um, were both very interested in science and mathematics. Her father encouraged them. But they weren't allowed to go to the University of Warsaw because only men could go there. So they um, attended a secret university uh, that was it was free. It was just people who felt that knowledge should be passed along. It was a subculture. They also learned about Polish children. And so they did that. And then she and her sister, whose name was Branya, they made a deal. They decided that they would put each other through university. So um, Branya would go first, and she would be supported by Marie, who would work and give her the money. And then when she finished and graduated from university, she would support Marie through university. So that is what they did. Branya moved to Paris. She went to university. She became a medical doctor. And um, Marie had to be, she was a governess, and uh, she supported her in that way. And then when Branya graduated, Marie moved to Paris as well, and she went to school. So I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, it's an interesting motivation too, right? I mean, if you know your sister is supporting you, you have to graduate, and you have to make sure you're really good, otherwise it's mm-hmm. failure. Yeah, so so Marie graduated from Master's in Physics from the University of Sorbonne in Paris in 1893, and then in uh, 1894 she graduated with a Master's in Mathematics, and at that time she met Pierre Curie, who became her husband. And um, together they worked in the lab, experimented on uranium rays, 
and they coined the word radioactivity and discovered many different elements that had radiate that were radioactive and together discovered polonium in 1898 and uh yeah and then eventually they got the the uh Nobel Prize in Physics for that in 1903. As, as I said, he insisted that she be part of that prize. Um, then in 1906, Pierre dies in a, a tragic horse and carriage accident, <laughs> which sounds kind of silly, but he got run over by horses, which must have been really horrible. Um, so she, she was heartbroken, but at the same time, the University of Sorbonne offered her his teaching position, and she took it and became the first female teacher at Sorbonne, University of Sorbonne. Um, then uh, shortly after that, in 1911, she was uh, she was awarded the Nobel Prize for Chemistry because she discovered radium. Now the interesting thing about this, and I did I can't I read this, but I now can't find my source, but I I believe it to be true. She had a relationship outside of marriage with uh, Paul Langevin, who was a, a former student of her husband. So he was younger than her; they weren't married. He was married to someone else. And and uh, when the Nobel Prize Committee discovered this, they wrote her a letter and said, well, we don't want to give you this prize anymore, and you should not accept it. We are, we are retracting this. But it had already been made public, so she had to agree to to have it retracted. And she said, no, I'm being awarded this prize because of what I did in science, not because of what I did in my personal life, and I am going to accept it. And she did. So uh, that was a huge thing as well. And she it was widely known that she'd had an affair. She she faced a lot of criticism about it. So uh, she was a pioneer in more than one way. She was. She was an extremely strong, independent yes. woman. I, I, I don't know exactly how to, how to frame this, but I think there's something very um, special about people who are really good at math. It's a totally different way of, thinking there's a strength there there's not that there aren't that many people who are really good at it you know in the upper echelons and so to achieve that and to know that you're uh you have this talent you have this ability and you can see the world that way i think that makes you a, a, at least it did with her a much more confident person you know and and one who said if i can do this then i can do anything else in my life and it'll it'll uh, bring me you know some some sense of fulfillment mm. she certainly was confident yeah she, very confident she a lot so so um then in world war 1 first world war um she and her daughter actually irene took uh, portable x-ray machines on the field and they they used them to help the the uh, wounded soldiers of course so they would x-ray and be able to you know mend their broken bones or whatever so she she really wanted to contribute and help as much as she could in the war so that was her war effort and she they helped thousands of soldiers in that way mm-hmm. and um yeah that was she died in 1934 um a very accomplished life her daughter irene curie julio as we talked about before also won the nobel prize for chemistry i'm sure her mother would have been very proud it was the year after she died so mm-hmm. Not so. Great. Really an amazing yeah. person. Yes, she was. Wait, uh, hold on. I've got to turn my volume back on. Okay, hold on a second here. You said she was taking out a, uh, a portable x ray machine yeah. and going into the field. Yeah. <sighs> Refresh my memory here. Didn't you do a uh, this day in history where you said 
they took a finger. Some 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 students took a finger, and basically, it was the first X-ray. No, it wasn't the first X-ray. It was taking uh, an actual photo and making a photo of the X-ray rather than having to see it. They could now make a photo of it uh, okay. and, and pass it along. All the right. X-ray, you had to have the machine and look at the machine right there. But with this, they could actually photograph it. But but good memory. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Because uh, wait a minute, yeah. there's something not quite right about this. Yeah. No, she okay. took well, the X-ray machine itself. It was a big yeah. thing out in the field. <laughs> so yeah. that must have been quite an adventure. Well, thank you so much for that, uh, Karen. Uh, so now I've, we've got an interview with Rachel Nanon Brown. Now, for those of you who don't know her, uh, Rachel uh, is a paleoanthropology uh, major, and she actually works at the university uh, uh, somewhere in Dallas, I believe. <laughs> it's in the interview, anyway. Uh, the interview runs about 26 minutes long. She was part of the uh, Dogma Debate team, Dogma Debate with David Smalley, a uh, very popular atheist podcast, uh, which, by the way, we will have David uh, in an interview uh, for our next show. Uh, now, she's no longer with the, the David uh, Smalley and the uh, Dogma Debate group, but uh, what she uh, she's also uh, doing a science segment on another podcast called Atheist on Air. Hmm, I'll have to look that up. Yeah, so uh, I'll go ahead and play that. And uh, like I said, it's about 26 minutes long, and uh, we'll be right back for this. Okay, well, my guest today is a paleoanthropologist who worked at the University of Arlington, Texas, finding and preserving fossils to understand the origin of human evolution. Recently, she's been working at the Dallas Perot Museum on Mammoth and Alaskan Dinosaur. She was the science co-host on Dogma Debate, and now she co-hosts Atheist on Air. Ladies and gentlemen, Rachel Nanon Brown. Look at that, Rachel. They love you here. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you for having me. I'm glad that everyone loves science, apparently. At least they love what I, I study, paleontology. Paleontology. Well, I got I got to tell you, I'm insanely jealous that you're a paleoanthropologist. Um, well, I, I I wouldn't say I'm a paleoanthropologist because you got to go to like Ethiopia and literally dig. But um, I do paleontology work, but I did study paleoanthropology, so I'm like an honorary. So you're humble. You're humble on top of that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Um. Well, welcome to the Fraser Valley, Rachel. And um, you know, to give us a, a a little understanding of who you are, would you be so kind to you know, like uh, Seth Andrew would say, would you be so kind to give us a Reader's Digest as to who you are and how you came to be? Mm-hmm. Well, okay. not, not um, how you came to be. I don't want to hear your parents' intimate relations here. <laughs> well, <laughs> my dad met my mother, and when I, um, I suppose at least when it comes to, I don't know if my atheism really matters because it's going to happen. Um, but I, I came into to studying evolution through dating a, a pastor. And I thought it was going to be fine. We didn't have to talk about stuff. And then two years in, he said that uh, people lived with dinosaurs and that the earth wasn't round and all sorts of other nonsense. And I went, ooh, that doesn't sound right. Um, but he was very good at his apologist arguments that I had never heard of. So I decided to start reading every night um, after he went to bed so that we could argue in the morning. <laughs> and after I started that habit, um, we lasted about like five months after that. And then after we, I broke up with him. I realized that I, I still really loved the subject. I, I loved human evolution. It was fascinating. And I guess that was when I was 20 or so. 
And then probably two months into just massively reading after that point, I switched my major because I was going to, um, to school for nutrition. And I realized I hated it. And I went, you know what? Fossils are awesome. And I'm going to switch. And so um, I, I switched to anthropology, subfield, paleoanthropology, or physical anthropology. Uh, for, and went to University of North Texas. And then got my bachelor's there. And then once I graduated, I, I went directly into doing work for a paleontologist at the University of Arlington. So I do, like, dig site stuff. We dig up archosaurs, about 100-million-year-old uh, dinosaurs. And um, so that about two years, depending on the season. And then throughout that whole time, I'm just constantly reading everything that I could possibly find on anything natural science. Um, so I, I pretty much, I'm self-taught most of what I know, pretty, especially when it comes to evolution and um, genetics, biology, astronomy, I'm self-taught. Um, but I at least am able to say that I have the title of being able to do like a research assistant, you know, for a paleontologist. And then doing that had got me into, I guess two months ago, got me into the, um, being accepted into the uh, paleo lab team at a pro museum. So I get to work with their team and help right now preserve a between 50,000 and 300,000 year old mammoth, which is pretty crazy. It takes um, a lot of space. What? It would take a lot of space. They said it was from space. No, 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 no. <laughs> I don't think mammoths are from space. Sorry, that was, my, that was my lousy <laughs> attempt at being witty. I'm sorry. <laughs> they do take up a lot of space, so... That is very serious. Like, you think you understand what a mammoth, like, how big they are. And then you walk into a room with giant planks of their rib cages and their soul, and you're like, what on earth? Something shouldn't be this large. <laughs> um, so I've just been working on that with them, and I'll be working on the Alaskan, or the first Alaskan dinosaurs ever found, um, probably about three months with them. And after that, I... I've done podcasting through Dogma Debate. I was a science, like you said. Um, well, I was just an evolution expert and science expert. And um, that's kind of where I was more showing off my, my hobby of reading evolution. So um, I was, I guess, one side doing like, archosaur paleontology stuff, especially. And then I had podcasting. I could write blogs and answer emails for anything possible when it comes to like, evolution. Mm-hmm. Um, because I've, I've read it all. Read it all. Um, after that, I don't think, at least when it comes to science, there's too much more. I mean, I, I like video games. That's okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> science, there's not too much more. You say, well, that's okay. That's enough, you know. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I can keep going. but uh, That's quite enough. I mean, you're, you're quite young yourself. Uh, if you don't mind me asking, how old are you? 27. Well, see. Just turned 27. That's quite see. accomplished for a 27-year-old. Not like, well, not like um, an old fart like that. I think I got lucky. I got real lucky getting into being able to work as a research assistant and being able to do that for a paleontologist that had connections to a pro museum. She's like, you should, uh, you should let her in because she's awesome. And I was like, yeah, you should. <laughs> and then I got accepted. <laughs> wow, okay. And all of this um, about arguing with a boyfriend. It all started with arguing with a boyfriend. It all started with 
arguing with a boyfriend. Yeah. Man can be useful once in a while. He's very useful. I mean, I, I got to thank him, you know. As an ex, I still want to punch him in the face, but I will thank him. That's okay. We won't because, mention his name on here. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. Um, but other than that, I'd say like 90% of, of my knowledge base is stuff I just read by myself. I don't. I didn't learn it in school, so that's kind of where my hobby of podcasting and, and science enjoying came in. Well, that's so. very impressive. Well, we're doing a show today on uh, women in science. Um, is there a past or present figure that really inspired you? I mean, you, you said you, you kind of, you're self-taught, and that's very impressive. But is there a, uh, a scientist, whether man or woman, that, that kind of prompted you to pursue that avenue? Um, okay, cool. Once I realized that I liked the subject, um, I would say the very first, because I, I started with just trying to understand how humans evolved. And, but that requires you to understand how evolution works. And um, the very first people, the scientists that I, I started reading were um, Richard Dawkins for his evolution book. And I read um, Michael Shermer's book, Why Darwin Matters. And um, then there was, there was a geneticist that uh, named Sean B. Carroll. Not Sean Carroll, but Sean B. Carroll. And he wrote a really amazing, like, how evolution is shown through genetics. And I, I read it seven or eight times, and I emailed him saying, I love your book so much, it's called Making It a Fitness, that I've highlighted over my highlights to the point where they've turned black. <laughs> I think I can't even read the sentences anymore. I just want to let you know that you know, this book is amazing. And he responded back when I, like, almost passed out. And he's like, oh, I'll send you a signed copy of my book. Oh my gosh! <laughs> and so um, I would say having the the, the more um, I guess just a, a more common language teacher of evolution like Richard Dawkins that can really just lay it out, and then you have John Carroll who goes like deep genetics, like there is evidence for evolution. You just have to have patience, learn about it. And I would say so too. Wow. Well, um, you know, here in Canada, I was—I guess the question I really want to ask you is, you know, what's the status of science education in the U.S.? Because here in Canada, of course, the situation is very different. We're not on the forefront of a, a battle against evolution like you guys are. Uh, but I—I I, uh, one of my concerns is, is we're starting to see that creep over the border. You know, we're starting to see creationism happen here. But you, you guys are on the forefront. I mean, you deal with people that deny evolution. You work in the field and everything. So tell me, what, what do you think this? What's the status of the whole science of science in general in the U.S.? What do you figure? Okay, um, well, it's kind of complicated in that each well, we of the states. complicated. Kind, yeah, it just take a while because um, Texas is is one of the worst, and I I live in Texas um, because we we were one of the main distributors, and I guess. Um, I don't know if we're the main writers, but we're the ones that kind of um, manufacture and, and approve and, and distribute science textbooks. So what Texas makes and approves is kind of what the country is. Um, so we have a lot of control, and what happens here is, is very scary because in, the, in these years we've had a lot of, um, I guess, very, very religious people that are either 
proponents for intelligent design, which is religion's way of trying to pretend they're science, um, or they're just straight-up creationists. They're getting elected onto the board, and um, they either flat-out say, like, evolution needs to be removed, we need to put creationism in there, or they say, we need to teach the controversy, and they try to put evolution and intelligent design on equal ground. And that sadly works really, really well because it is they've masked their campaign to put intelligent design with you need to make sure that all all theories and all sides are have equal time, which sounds great. Sounds like a great idea. Everyone should have equal equal time. Show you know, both sides of it. And um and they have they would put stickers on like science textbooks that say this textbook discusses you know the theories of evolution you must you know approach this with a, like, a critical mind and blah 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 and they would do all these little sneaky things that you're like okay that's that's fine that's not whatever but what they're doing is that you shouldn't have to have a sticker saying that you have to use your critical mind and weigh the other options only with evolution. When they, they don't do that with any other subject in biology. They didn't do it in physics, chemistry. They just were like, evolution needs to be approached carefully. And they put the stickers on, and we freaked out. Um, but the, the main issue is that... Hold on here a second. You're saying, you're saying that they're putting stickers on school books saying that mm-hmm. warning... This is evolution. Yeah, it was pretty much. I, I hope they don't. I don't know if they're allowed to do it anymore, but I know that it wasn't that long ago that they passed that. That and they, they literally that. put a sticker. They put stickers on a version of, of science textbooks that were being distributed in high schools. Only in the that, U.S., right? Huh? Only in the U.S. they would do that. Only in the U.S. and it's starting in Texas. Um. And then let's see. The main, yeah, the main driver right now is teach the controversy. Wow. Teach both sides, make them even, so that makes most people go, yeah. Well, why, why aren't you teaching both sides? But, yeah, that's fair. And it's just their their secret campaign to, to say that intelligence design is science, and that's another theory based on science mm. um, when it's not, and um, it doesn't belong in science classrooms. So. That's the current kind of sneaky battle right now that they're they're getting away with a little bit better than just flat out saying, I wish it was not true. Get it out of the textbook. That's not working as well. But sadly, they um, reduced a lot of of common high school textbooks to a couple paragraphs, maybe on that reflection, um, a picture of Darwin, and... If, if you even have that, a lot of the high school science teachers um, are having issues when it comes to students, like showing up and, and battling them mid-class, um, or they're actually science teachers that don't accept evolution, and they'll completely skip that curriculum, or they'll teach it incorrectly on purpose. That's amazing. It's, it's really sad. Um so it's, it's, so it's looking pretty grim on the high school level, is what you're saying. Yes, where when kids are supposed to be taking biology classes, uh, it's either almost completely removed, um, or if it's in the context book, a lot of the teachers are getting away with 
changing the lessons where they they can make evolution out to be completely false. And then they have kids like uprising in classrooms and. Um, so what about uh, a higher level, higher education, like a college or university? How is that looking like? I, I would I mean, you just came out of there I yourself, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, with college, I couldn't I couldn't say that there's any specific, at least when it comes to major universities, there's any restrictions on current evolution um, information that's given. But I did notice going through through college that if you actually learn about evolution, um, it's in a very specific class and it's a very specific, like a specific chapter. And if you don't go take physical anthropology, you don't go take, you know, the, the biology and, and evolution of, of humans, um, in your class, like you might get through college and you, you don't even hear about evolution. It doesn't happen. Um, and so it's kind of weird see, like even science students go in and, and I, I, I had physical anthropology down, like, because I had studied it before I got to the class and then I got to the class and then I was sitting with my classmates and they were panicking because none of them understood how natural selection works. And that was part of our essay. And I'm like, you guys are seniors in, in anthropology and archaeology. How do we not know that? So I, I don't. I don't think it's because we're being restricted, but we're not doing. We don't. We don't represent um, the importance of evolution um, and, and why we need to teach it to everyone. It's not just a specialized, you know, interest. Okay. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, other than that, it's not in Christian colleges like at all. We teach creationism. Wow, that's, that's fun. So, so if you're looking at the future, then. I mean, you're a young, you're a younger generation. You're looking at the future. Are you pessimistic or optimistic about this kind of stuff? I don't. I'm kind of on the fence because I, I see like what like their tactics are having to become at least when it comes to um, the 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 textbook for for the kids that are just learning about evolution. Um, their tactics their tactics are having to get more complex and ridiculous. Because the fact that they can't just show up and go, well, I want God in the, in the classroom. And they go, okay, that's great. Let's do it. They have to be really sneaky about it. That at least gives me hope that courts are not allowing just, just blatant religion in science classes. Um, but it scares me because of the fact that in, like, Texas, even though most of our cities are kind of liberal, are outside of the cities are not. And they're able to get these, um, these people into like the, the boards of education and they have nothing to do with education and they are the, some of the dumbest people I've ever seen. And that scares <laughs> me that we have we don't even care that the board of education doesn't believe that people, you know, and, or believes that people and dinosaurs live together. That's scary, terrifying. But I would say overall more optimistic because, um, internet and Google and, and, um, you know, Google images of, of fossils is even better than it used to be 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, there's so many books out now. I would say that there is at least a higher population of the critical-minded, but I think the other side's going to probably go out with a fight. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've always compared uh, the religious uh, mindset as it's a wounded animal right now, so it's more dangerous than ever. 
it's cornered. Oh, yeah. They know they're going out, so they're going to try to hurt as much yeah, as they can. They're, they're definitely, that's what it seems like. They're just pulling out as much, all the guns that they possibly could have, saying the most ridiculous things, trying all the ways. That, um, but that kind of tells me that maybe we're winning. Yeah. So it's going gonna, it's gonna to still be a painful ride, I think. <laughs> well, let's hope not. Let's hope not. Okay, so yeah. tell me something. Um, the, the, like I said, the show is about women in science, but, and, and we're hoping that the show will appeal to a lot of younger women, well, and older women anyway, to get into science. So you, as somebody who fairly recently, well, you're still in the science, but got out of the educational system in science, can you give our audience some tips, you know, some pointers, something, you know, some words of encouragement? What would, you know, if you were speaking to a younger Rachel right now, you'd say, what would you say? Okay. Um, I would say that to open your mind, um, broaden your perspective on what science means and what it could be. Because as I was going through high school and even early college, if someone said, I like science or I'm studying things, you know, scientific stuff, I would immediately be like, boring chemistry, that's awful, I don't care, what a bunch of nerds, and that's it. Um, it does seem daunting when you think of these big science subjects. Yeah, I mean, and that's kind of the, one of the main drivers for what I do podcasting is because I realize that the average American hasn't taken a science class since high school. They probably hated it, and they might have had a terrible teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, and now, when they're 32, and they they hear that they have to like read science or listen to science, they're like, oh no, I don't want to sit there and do chemical formulas. Um, so I think most people just get defensive. They don't even want to pay attention to it. Uh, but there's, there's definitely a lot of resources and people out there like me that spend the time to, to kind of bridge when it comes to the big sciences and to, to help, you know, the average American to go, you know what, actually this, this, this can be really fun. It's not a giant daunting thing that you can't, you can't grasp. It's not just sitting in the chemistry lab. Um, or, you know, going, you know, being an astronaut in space. And um, it's, that's actually, you know, a very, very isolated part of science. And that I think that pretty much everyone could find a, a topic within science that they would find interesting because it applies to everyone's life. So, I mean, if it depends on, I, mean, I guess, it depends on the age that we're talking to. But if we're talking to, to somebody who's younger, I would say, um, like, uh, specifically to females, that the fact that this is such a broad umbrella that it's a guarantee they're going to find something that they can become passionate about because it's about understanding life. It's about understanding anything you find interesting. If you understand it, it's through science. Um, And it's a very fulfilling path because one science leads to another. I studied human evolution and that was it. And then that led to all of evolution, geology, back to astronomy, back to physics. physics. Mm-hmm. So I just started going backwards, and then you kind of realize, like, hey, this is fun. And you can then go you can look at your cat and be like, wow, I understand what the cat is. That's amazing. Like, and then you can, you can go to the doctor and get a vaccination and go, huh, I wonder what a vaccination actually is and have the tools to Google it. And, and be able to tell the difference between, you know, an actual science article and the complete bull and being able to find out 
the truth yourself. Mm. And I think that's very fulfilling, mm. even if you don't go into science. Um, being able to, to differentiate between the truth and opinion is very, very handy in life, I think. Hmm. Yeah, certainly. Yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right. I think a lot of people look at science and they they expect to see this huge tome fall on their desk, and it's all very dry. But even if you mm-hmm. take little bits and pieces of it, you can you know uh, get into it real quick and understand real quick, and it also gives you yeah, the yeah. power to understand things that yeah. you didn't understand before or didn't understand before. Well, yeah, that, I mean, there's definitely some dry stuff out there. Oh, I'm sure there is. <laughs> definitely, definitely some dry stuff. But on Netflix. You just click science documentaries, and there's some really cool, like, just entertaining shows. Like, Your Inner Fish is a three-part documentary based on a book that I love, and it's all about how you can look at yourself and find our fish ancestry. And you don't have to know about genetics. You don't have to know about paleontology or evolution. You can just go watch it. And that's science, and it's actually really fun to understand um, anything that you want to understand. Mm, Your Inner Fish, I'll have to look that up. I remember you talking about that on the when you were on the David yeah. Smalley. Uh, I have to get a tattoo. It just says, "I read it in your inner fish," just somewhere because I say it so, <laughs> <much>. <laughs> so I guess this is your chance, uh, Rachel. Go ahead, plug yourself. Be shameless. You know everything you want to promote about what you've been doing right now, up to date, of your future plans. Go for it. Okay. Um, I don't normally plug myself. Um, no, I would say. Go right ahead. We're giving you the mic. Okay. Uh, well, at least when it comes to, to podcasting, I'm on Atheist on Air now, and I have more of a, a, a overall science role because it's, it's a little bit more open-ended, so we'll have, you know, a couple of subjects. And it's, instead of having just a little snippet of science, it's, it's a really in-depth discussion, and um, I really do enjoy being able to find as many ways possible to make um, some sort of information really fun and, and make people not even realize that they're learning something because they laugh, you know, they, they find it interesting or ridiculously weird. Um, and having that just kind of open platform has been really nice. Mm-hmm. So that's what I'm doing tonight. Um, and In Arizona Sundays, to, your podcast? We're once a month on the second Sunday. Okay. Okay. I believe. And I went from doing that every week to once a month, which is actually kind of nice. <laughs> More um, free time, huh? Because it, yeah, I get some free time and, and, and people can, you know, want and miss the show and, and really, like, pay attention and then want to listen to a couple hours of science, which if you do that every week, it's like, all right, I can stop ranting. <laughs> um, I, I do like doing it once a month, I think. And, and the cash in... Professor Stephen and the coast are awesome. And then, let's see here. Professionally, I'm just going to be working at Pro. And um, if anyone's in the Dallas area in the next couple of years, if you go and you see a giant mammoth, I worked on it. <laughs> pretty freaking awesome. That is awesome. <laughs> but, well, thank um, you so much, Rachel. I appreciate the time you gave us here. And uh, I sure hope your uh, this interview will uh, help inspire uh, some people out there to go out there and uh, study science. Thank you. Yeah, anytime. Well, that was Rachel Brown. Very cool. Yeah, you know she was she was really fun and uh, interesting thing about Rachel is uh, she's so young. She's very young, 
as she's still in her twenties and she's, oh, wow. she's done a lot. She's done a lot of work, and like we heard in the interview, she's working on mammoth and di- uh, dinosaurs from Alaska. And like she said, you know, if you go through uh, somewhere down Dallas at some point, you see you seeing a mammoth, or she worked on it, which is pretty cool. And I'm so jealous because that's exactly what I wanted to do as a kid. I wanted to be a paleontologist, although she's an anthropo paleontologist. But you know, uh, still, you know, I'm it's very cool. It's a really cool line of work. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, we'll look forward to hearing a lot more from her, hopefully in the future. And I told her that, uh, you know, she's got friends in Canada now. So uh, at which point she turned to her boyfriend and said, hey, I've got friends in Canada now. (laughs) (laughs) She was a darling. Anyone who's interested in paleontology, just as a side note, should really go to the Royal Geo Museum in Drumheller. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's amazing. It's very inspiring. Good good uh, exhibit on evolution, too. Really informative. Yeah. So that was our show. Well, thank you so much for listening, guys. Thank you so much for coming there. Thank you, Nancy. Oh, it's always fun. Always a pleasure. Now, uh, remember, guys, uh, you can always follow us at leftatthevalley.com. Or you can uh, send us an email, love mail, hate mail, or complaints about Karen's missing her spots and yeah. drops. <laughs> yeah, or it. me talking too much on the show that's supposed to be women at left at valley at outlook.com. Our next show, we should have David Smalley of Dogma Debate with us. Uh, thank you to everybody. Thank you again, Nancy. And, yeah. And Talk to you guys soon. All right.